invite you both to embrace the challenge. If we can develop consistency, I think you guys are gonna see great results. Nice work, Carl. We've been working now together for a while. How's, how's everything going? I found out I had muscles that I didn't know I had. <laughs> <laughs> for about two or three days, so. And trusting God, okay, this has been good because some of the stuff we do, I look at it and I go, you really want me to do that? <laughs> and it works out pretty well. After a good workout session with the Melissa yesterday, my interval training spin class was quite difficult this morning. But you know, that's why I'm here and continue to persevere. One of the things in the first chapter of James, it's talking about practices that you can do. I have to practice listening more than I do talking. I, I like to talk too much. I'm thinking of finding a new trainer and possibly a new church, I'm not sure. I think it's going great, spiritually, kind of the perseverance as far as like, you have a plan and you stick with it, no matter how difficult it is. The workout was great. Okay. It was hard, yeah. but you know, I feel really, Good, Marty. Excellent. All right. Good job. Come on, Wooddale. How exciting is this, huh? What a fun journey we have been on over the past month, inspired by the videos that I see each week of people getting fit uh, physically and excited as well about the stories of so many of you who've been taking a deeper dive into your spiritual fitness. What God is doing through you is extraordinary. One of our staff's core values is that together is better, and it has been so fun for me to hear the stories of what God is doing through you together as God's people. You are making him look good all over the Twin Cities and the world, and I can't wait to share a little bit more of some of those stories. But today we're going to get right into the fourth chapter of the book of James. We have been uh, studying this marvelous book over the course of the past month. If you were with us last week, Pastor Kyle said that the book of James is essentially the, the best of the best of James' teachings. It's, it's five power-packed chapters of New Testament wisdom. Some people have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And he begins in chapter 4 with these words, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the early church, the first words that come to mind are not quarreling and fighting. I think about this heroic group of men and women who in the first century lived as kind of the first disciples of Jesus Christ, tasked with the mission of sharing the gospel all over the world. These are the, the, the heroes of the faith that we read about that gathered together, who, who when there was a need, took care of the need. But like most churches, eventually some conflict arose. And so James addresses the fights and the quarrels, and maybe you've seen how silly fights and silly quarrels can impact a church family or your personal family or the workplace in which you find yourself spending so many hours each week or perhaps a team that you've been a part of. When I first graduated from college, my, my very first job was working in the admissions department of my university. And so I'd call prospective students, go on college fairs, and I won't for, I'll never forget the first day at that job, I walked into an office that was occupied by Greg. Greg had had solo reign of that office for seven years. 
And he wasn't really happy. Our university had some cost-cutting measures in place. All of a sudden, they had to share offices. And here's this rookie who's green in the whole recruiting game walking into his office. And uh, to top it all off, we were behind in the number of students that we were supposed to recruit. Our university was bleeding students, bleeding money, and Greg was stressed out. He wondered how he was going to make ends meet for his family that year. And I remember that everything, my first three or four months of working in that job, was a battle. Greg would lie about me. Greg would tell stories about me that, that uh, he, he'd humiliate me. And this was at a Christian university. And I remember going home each night and just stressed out. And I'd say to my wife, I can't stand Greg. Greg is the biggest jerk I've ever met in my life. I, I, I just, I can't stand this guy. And my wife would say to me, I'm so tired of your whining, Brian. Would you just like pray for Greg. And I'd say, well, I don't want to pray for Greg. And she said, Brian, God tells us to pray for our enemies. Pray for him. He's about as close to an enemy as anybody you have on earth right now. And I said, I, I don't want to pray for him. And she says, Brian, just pray that he'll succeed in everything that he does. I said, are you crazy, honey? If he succeeds in everything he does, I'm getting fired. We're not going to have a paycheck. I mean, I'm not going to pray for him to succeed. And she went out because, you know, she's wiser and smarter than my wife. And, and she was listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and I wasn't. And so when I finally yielded to the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life, God did some incredible things. And in a matter of, of probably six weeks, Greg became my best work friend. And he remained that way the rest of the time that I was at that university. The, the morale of the office started to turn around as Greg and I started to get along. In fact, uh, we recruited more students that year and turned around so much of what was happening in that university. And, and God just rewarded it. But here's what I found. When I tried to live my life my way instead of God's way, my life was miserable. And when I yielded control of my life, when I submitted to him and what his desires are, I began to see as a young man that life went better. You know, the Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, talks about the challenge that every one of us have as it relates to our hearts. Because sometimes we, we, we say these things that we can't believe that we said, or we think these things that we think that's not how a follower of Christ should think. Why do we do that? Well, look at what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You ever feel that way about your heart? God, why again do I, do I do those things? What James wants us to understand is that our hearts are going to deceive us over and over again because we have a problem with what we desire. He encourages us to be people who make God's desires our desires, and he teaches us our first lesson today, and that is that spiritually fit people are going to submit their desires to God. James wants us to be people whose greatest desire is God himself. Jesus said, when asked, what is the greatest commandment of them all? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, God needs to become our all-consuming passion. We need to love him more than we love ourselves, more than we love the world, more than we love the, the, the desires that come with that. One pastor's put it this way, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. I love that. James told his readers, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The pursuit of their pleasures had brought the people to a spot where they were experiencing some misery in their lives. And the last thing they wanted to do was submit to God. So look at what James says next. You adulterous people. 
How would you like somebody to address you that way? Have a pastor come up here and say, hey, Woodell, you adulterous people. I mean, this is, these are hard words. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Which brings us to another problem. Because James has these sayings that that feel like conundrums. You look at the rest of scripture and you wonder, how does this gel? Because isn't the most famous Bible verse of all time, John 3, 16, what does it say? For God so loved, what? The world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he goes on to say, but God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, we talked about love the Lord your God. The second part was to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told the disciples, listen, followers of me are going to be known for their love for one another. And he also encouraged those of us who were followers of Jesus to live as servants to the world and to love the people in this world who needed Jesus. So how does that jive? What does that mean? Enmity with God, you know, how does that work out? What James is addressing here is that we shouldn't fall so in love with the world's systems that the voice of God is drowned out in our life. And that happens so often. We say we love Jesus, but man, we love sweet Martha's cookies. I mean, they're just so good. We say we love Jesus, but man, that Corvette, I mean, that is just, you know, we say we love Jesus, but there are things that we pursue in this world with so much more gusto sometimes than we pursue God. And it shows us that spiritually fit people are people who live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The way that Paul, James describes it in verse 5 is that, that, that God jealously longs for his spirit to indwell us. See, our trainer, James, knew that God wanted so much more for his people um, than they were experiencing in their lives. God wants so much more for you too. He doesn't want you to live a life that is consumed with the world's structures. He wants you to understand that uh, this life is more than about getting a great education and a great job and maybe finding somebody to settle down with and having great kids and going on really nice vacations. See, God is, is so much more than about the temporary. He wants you to experience the life that he has for you. James had seen the significance that following Jesus had made in his life. Remember, this is the half-brother of Jesus who's writing these words. This is a man who, in the beginning of his life, wasn't convinced that his brother was the Messiah. And after the resurrection, something changes in James, and he is absolutely convinced that Jesus is who Jesus said that he was, and that the life that Jesus called him to, with persecution and all, everything he was experiencing in the first century, was better than the alternative. So I wonder, how are you responding to the Holy Spirit's work in your life? How are you listening to God's Spirit? Two weeks ago, I had a chance to preach here, and if you missed it, I encouraged the people who were here to do something in the week ahead. I said, I'd like you to take the next week and to pray. And I want you to pray a prayer similar to this. Lord, you're going to do great things in the world today, so help me to see the world with your eyes, help me to respond with your heart, and help me to be your hands and feet in this generation. And I challenge you to spend the next seven days praying that prayer, and if you would, email me what God did. 
And then I left for a week of uh, bringing my youngest son to college. We are one week into being empty nesters this week. And, and as we dropped him off at college, kind of didn't pay a lot of attention to email. And I came back, and guys, you blew me away. I had over 45 emails from you just kind of sharing different ways that you responded to the voice of God and things that you did. I want to read you one of those emails that I got. This is from a, a man in our church. He said, last evening I was walking my neighborhood, and I ran into a neighbor who rents an apartment across the street. He's a former Chicago tough guy who's lived in Minnesota for a few years. Recently, he went through some medical issues, and he's been healing from surgery. The subject turned to dinner, and he had not eaten. He can't. He doesn't have a car, and he can't drive. I was on my way out to Five Guys, which I rarely do. So I offered to bring some back for him. And that's when he grimaced. He said he really missed his White Castle. Five Guys, White Castle... (laughs) I'll let you argue it later, all right? Get fit, everyone. Get fit, all right? So he says, on the way to five guys, I recalled the last part of your sermon, a prayer to ask God for a chance to use me and us this week. I turned the car onto the highway and headed to Hopkins to get my neighbor his favorite meal. Upon returning with his double cheeseburger sliders, large fries, and a Coke, that's a scary thing to say at this service, my neighbor had a huge smile. And he really appreciated someone going out of the way for him for his favorite food. It made his night. And now the emailer becomes the preacher. I love this. Matthew 6, 3 says, Do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing when giving. So I made sure I turned to give the glory to God as soon as he had the food in hand. Small event, but this morning you could see the friendly smile and the normally tough face. I told him I could still smell the sliders in my car. (laughs) As a Chicago guy, I just had to say that White Castle about once a year is a biblical thing. I'm convinced of that. All right, it's, it's really good. This was a man, uh, this, this, this Wooddaler, I got to tell you, I just love that he experienced what it means to respond to the Holy Spirit. He could have ignored the voice when he felt like, you know what, why don't you just ask your neighbor if he's hungry. He could have said, I'm going to five guys. He could deal with it. He could have said, you know what, um, This is just too much of a hassle. But instead, he listened to a small prompting. And you know what he received? A glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. He received a glimpse of what it means for thy kingdom to come, thy thy, here on earth as it is in heaven, uh, for, for God's will to be done. James would continue his teaching in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, when I read this, I think of like the old trainer from the 1980s that would wear a headband like this, all right? And I think of our trainer, James. And I feel like James is shouting out some commands that are difficult sometimes to hear. Like, like if, if I was standing in front of him, he'd say, hey, Schulenberg, submit. Okay. Resist. Okay. Humble yourself. Really okay. You know, like draw near to God and, 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 and grieve and mourn and wail because you need to do that. And now repeat and repeat and do it again and again and again. Listen, the challenge that he's giving us are challenges that humanity has faced since the very beginning of the world. We don't like these words. You want me to submit? You want me to take a sincere look at my sin and grieve and mourn and wail 
and you want me to do it again? And the answer to that is yes. You see, spiritually fit people are people who draw near to God. And, and he talks about kind of a rhythm to how that's going to happen. It begins with submission to God. Now, that's a word that, that is a word that has sometimes been misused. It's a word that is, is kind of a powder keg word sometimes in the church. Submit simply means to obey. And to his first century audience, this was a word that was a military term. The way that people in the first century understood submission was most often, they, they were very familiar with the, the rule of Rome and Roman armies. And they were very used to the idea of, of a garrison of, of men submitting to their, their commanding officer. And they would arrange themselves in order under that officer. And so when James says, I want you to submit yourself to God, what he is saying is you are arranging yourself under the rule and under the authority of the greatest ruler, God. May you do that. And he goes from saying, I want you to submit to saying, I want you to flee. I want you to flee the devil. Resist the devil, it says, and he will flee from you. Resist, resist, resist. And, and so many of us struggle with that. And so many of us have, can talk about times where we have resisted Satan's temptation. And we've seen God give us great victory. But unfortunately, there's a lot of stories the other way too. And if you read scripture, like from the very beginning, you see stories of people who could have resisted. And when you read James's words here, you kind of want to say, come on, Adam and Eve, resist. You can do it. You can do it. And they don't. And then you see some hope with somebody like Joseph. Resist, and he does, and man, it's great victory. But then you see David, and you're like, David, resist. Flee that sin with Bathsheba, but he doesn't resist. And there are devastating consequences for the rest of David's life and for his family. You see Peter on the night that Jesus is betrayed, and he's in that, he, he, he's, he's told Jesus, I will never betray you. Even if everybody else turns against you, I'm not going to betray you, Jesus. And there he is in the courtyard, and, and the tempting comes, and the testing comes, and you just want to go, Peter, come on, resist, resist, resist. You can do this. And he doesn't. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. And then the next part comes, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Do you know that? Have you experienced that in your life? James is quoting the Old Testament here when he, when he, when he shares this quote, and it's a truth that I know there are some of you that need to hear this today. I think there are some of you that are here today and you think you have gone so far from God and there's no way that God could possibly forgive you. There's no way that God could possibly be pursuing you. This year we celebrated the 25th anniversary of Wooddale's work in the Bridge Builders program in Guatemala and I was blessed to be a part of that team. And on that team we had a number of teams that make it up. One of the teams was a recovery team. And our Celebrate Recovery team would go from church to church and share about what recovery ministry could do and share testimonies. And there's one little rehab center there on the lake where we do ministry and we really haven't had a, a chance to partner with them a whole lot. And there was an opportunity that opened up on the last day of the trip. And uh, some of our team members were feeling sick that morning, and they were like, maybe we just need to cancel. And I said, let's not cancel. I'll, I'll go. I'll preach. I'll figure something out. The Holy Spirit's going to work. God's good. And, um, and Amanda, who's here, said, I'll share my testimony. And, and, and she did and did a marvelous job. And Larry, who's 80 years old, and his voice was gone. I mean, he had worked so hard that week. Um, said, I'll, I'll speak to. And so he gets up with a raspy voice and he speaks to these men and God just takes over and he uses Larry in powerful ways. 
And when I finally got the chance to preach to these guys that morning, um, so many of them, they just looked empty and shallow and at the end of their rope. And many of them, they were in their first week in the program. They'd been forced to go there from family or friends. And I just sensed that God wanted me to tell the story of a friend of mine named Richard, who's a recovering heroin addict. Richard's been, you know, this pastor is one of his best friends for 10 years. And I've watched with Richard through the ups and downs of addiction. And when Richard was in the grips of addiction, he would avoid me. He'd do everything he could to get away from me and to get away from his family and others. And, and as we were there that day, I began to tell his story because Richard was celebrating now three years of sobriety. And I said, you know, some of you are like Richard and you feel like you have walked so far away from God and you are here and God is somewhere like way over by the baptistry over there. What we find is when we turn around and I got a really big guy from the center to come up and he had these arms that could break me and, and, and I'm a big guy, he was a bigger guy and I, I made him put his arms out like this and he stood right behind me and followed me and I turn around and he's right there and I'm right here and he gives me this huge hug. And I said, that's God. Our God pursues and when we're going this way, God is right there. And he is following you and he is pursuing you. Listen, we find all over the Bible, if we will draw near to God, God will draw near to us. You are not the one exception in the history of humanity that that is not true of. And it is the utmost of arrogance to think that you are the one human being that is strayed so far that God wouldn't love you. That is a lie from the devil. Don't believe it. Spiritually fit people draw near to God. You know what all spiritually fit people do? They watch what they say. Pastor Kyle preached one of the best sermons I've ever heard on the tongue, this little tiny muscle that has the potential to do so much damage in this world last week. If you've missed it, go back and watch it. But James, even though he speaks so much about the tongue in chapter 3, feels this need in the next chapter to talk about the tongue again. So here's what he says. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbors? Do you ever heard anybody say, Christians are so judgmental? Like, let's not give people a reason to be able to say that. We're not the judge. James is so clear here. There's one lawgiver. There's one judge. It's not Schulenberg. It's not you. It's God. He's the one. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, have this responsibility to hold each other accountable and to love each other, to lovingly confront sometimes, but not to judge. There's a difference. There's a difference. Let's never be people who think and presume that we have been called to be judges over a culture that doesn't know Jesus. We will never reach our friends who need Christ if that is the attitude that we take. Why would we ever expect somebody who doesn't know Jesus to act like they do? One more lesson. Spiritually fit people live with the end in mind. They live with eternity in their hearts. Jesus talked about this often. I love treasure hunter movies. Indiana Jones, the first three, fantastic. That fourth one ruined it all, okay? But, but uh, the American treasure movies, I just love those films. These films about searching for a treasure that is vast and great. Thinking about being the one who would discover that. But listen, God's called all of us to be treasure hunters, and it's, it's to hunt for a treasure with a lasting wealth that will never fade away. Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
If we want lasting wealth, people, we've got to invest in the things that are eternal. And I think after James met Jesus in the way that a brother would meet the Savior, that James remembered the way that Jesus said that we were to search for a treasure that will never fade away. And so in his own way, at the end of chapter 4 of James, he puts it this way. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, as it is you boast in your arrogant, arrogant schemes. James doesn't want us to be so consumed with the world that we miss out on what really matters. A few years ago, I was at a conference with Louis Giglio, and Louis this incredible communicator, and he started the Passion Conference for college students years ago, pastors in Atlanta. And every time he travels, he likes to run in the city, and he was in New York City running across those famous bridges of New York, and the rain was just pelting him that day. And he said as he was praying, uh, he was praying, God, would you please make the rain stop? And God, would you protect my family while I'm gone? And would you give my kids a good life? And that bully at school, would you just make him go away? And God, would you just do just, just great things for my family? And he's like, I was struck with how selfish my prayers were. God doesn't tell us to pray for the safety of our family. He prays that his will would be done in our family. And sometimes God's will is to allow us to go through some incredibly difficult times so that he can produce in us a greater dependency upon him. And that's really hard for us as self-made people to think that God would want us to live a, a life of submission and dependency. But it's what God calls us to do. So I want to give you a workout for this week. We live in a fiercely independent country. After all, we were founded with the Declaration of Independence. I mean, to be dependent upon anything doesn't sound very American. We are so fiercely uh, independent that this year in the summer, there was a song that was on the Billboard Hot 100 list that, well, let's just say it broke a 61-year record and became the, the most popular number one hit of all time. And I know in the 11 uh, o'clock service. You know this way better than the traditional service. You know the word, song I'm talking about, little Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus. Um, you know, yeah, I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. I'm going to ride till I can't no more, <laughs> right? And then he, he, he moves past that to a little bit of this beautiful uh, rap with, uh, with, with Lil Nas X. I got the horses in the back. Horse tack is attached, had his Maddie black, got the boots that's blacked and batched. All right, are you loving this? Okay. Now listen, I am a, I'm turning 50 tomorrow, and my kids tell me that I have to retire from rap, but you know, because 50-year-olds don't do that. But but listen, there's another part of that song that says this: can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. So I don't know. I don't know if I want to give my rap career up, okay? But here's the deal. That song, that chorus, can't nobody tell me nothing? Come on, isn't that the way, the way so many of us really do live our lives? You can't tell me nothing. Frank Sinatra, decades ago, lest you think this is just an immature kid thing, wrote a song that kind of went this way. I did it my way. All right? So, so he did it too. He did it too. And guess what? Millennia before Sinatra, there was a garden. And there was a man and a woman who lived in the garden and a serpent who came to them. And he said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? 
Really, you're going to listen to God? He can't tell you nothing. Do it your way. Do what you want to do. Don't submit to him. And what I want to suggest to you today is that's a lie from the devil. Listen, if we want to do things our way and not God's way, we are going to end up in a disastrous spot in our life. And you may say, well, what about all those people who do it their way and they seem to get ahead in this world? Well, this world isn't all there is. Your life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And if you're living for just this world, you, you are living in this microscopic portion of eternity. And you will regret it for eternity. Even our founding fathers recognized this. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But our founding fathers didn't end with those words. It wasn't just about independence. The declaration ends this way. With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. There was this dependency upon God. And my workout for the week for you this week is that you would write out a declaration of dependence to God. A declaration of dependence. And you might say, well, what does that mean? Several years ago, a friend of mine introduced me to the concept. And so I thought I'd write my own many years ago. And it changed the trajectory of my life. i got to tell you, about eight years ago, I wrote this. And, and really it has changed how I pray about people, how I live my life. This is what I wrote. I hold these truths. This is plagiarism. To be self-evident that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Plagiarism ends there. But God, I also hold these truths. My life when lived apart from you is a disaster. I need you. I'm a sinner who desperately needs your grace. I'm hopelessly lost without the salvation that is offered through your son, Jesus Christ. I am a Christian who has been saved by grace. I am dependent upon your Holy Spirit for guidance as to how I should live my life, for conviction of sin, and for the courage to live for you and for your glory in this generation. If you are the creator, and I believe with all my heart that you are, then it stands to reason that I am amongst the created. I need your help to help me understand your plan for my life. I'm dependent upon the wisdom that comes from knowing you and seeking first your kingdom and your glory. I need your eyes to help me see the world as you see it. I need your compassion to help me love the world as you do. I need your provision to help me provide for my family and to help me provide for the needs of others. I need you every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day. Lord, I declare my dependence upon you. May you help me to live with the joy that comes from the life that you have called me to. God, I need your strength to live that life. I'm yours. I pledge my allegiance to you. And friends, I want to encourage you to write something similar this week. Don't copy my words. If you want to copy the founders for your little preamble, you go do that. Here's what I want you to do. Two weeks ago, I asked you to email me, how's the Holy Spirit working in your life? This week, I want to challenge you. Send me your declaration of dependence upon God at my email address. And if you don't want to do that, uh, share it with your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers, somebody. Let somebody know, hey, I'm taking a step this week. And it's a step to declare that, God, you are worthy of my trust. God, I am going to voluntarily submit my life from this day forward for the rest of my life to you. 
Because listen, if you'll do that, the last eight years of my life, and I've been a pastor for 20-some years, the last eight years of my life have been the most exciting years. Saying, God, I'm tired of trying to hold on. God, it's all you. May you live in submission, and may you live a life of allegiance to him. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, and we thank you that you so loved us that you would give your one and only son, Jesus, so that people like us might experience grace, undeserved, unmerited favor from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, forgive us for the times when we think we know better than you. Forgive us for the times even today that we've been tempted to live our lives in a way that's different than what you want. Father, I I praise you that on this beautiful state fair summer day that these families said we're going to be in church today. God, thank you for them submitting that part of their life to you. And God, would you just do wonderful things in each individual's life here today? God, would you this week allow people to draw closer to you and experience the, the truth that you draw close as well? Lord, there's nothing that that we have done that can separate us from your love. For that person or those people who are here today that think that, that are believing the lie of the devil, that they are beyond God's grace, may today that lie be wiped away. And may your spirit tell the truth. That people find the hope that comes from you and you alone. Lord, we, we tell you we love you. We pledge ourselves to you. We submit ourselves voluntarily to the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen.